0: Well, welcome. This is a session focusing on the topic of discipleship, and I appreciate you joining us uh, this morning. My name is Mark Tatlock, and uh, I serve here as an elder, also uh, work in giving oversight to uh, our missionaries, as well as uh, work with the Masters Academy International. And so it's a joy uh, to present this seminar to you on the subject of discipleship. Just by way of introduction, in my own life, I grew up in the church. I was the son of a pastor, really thankful for the godly example and influence uh, that I had in my own life, um, being raised in a, in a godly home. But I grew up also in a context uh, my parents would describe as very uh, legalistic. Uh, we came from a very um, fundamentalist kind of uh, independent Bible Church background, and while the doctrine was sound, the culture of the church wasn't uh, really a culture that focused on growing from the heart to the external, showing godliness. It was the pressure point put on the outside to behave and observe and obey a whole bunch of rules that uh, equated with godliness in the minds of of the people in the context of the church. And so uh, I came to what was Los Angeles Baptist College in 1983, now known as the Master's University. Wonderful school, but it was part of that kind of denominational or association of churches that you could characterize uh, having kind of that legalistic culture to them. And uh, I remember when Pastor MacArthur was appointed as president. I was a student. If you know a little bit about his own personal history, he had attended Bob Jones University that at the time fell into that same kind of category, very fundamentalist and we would say legalistic uh, culture. Well, if you don't know John's testimony, he didn't complete his studies at Bob Jones University. He was actually asked to leave. um, And I really resonated with John when he came as president, because he basically took the student handbook, and uh, they just disposed of it. And they said, let's go back to the Word of God and ask a simple question. How should believers live in community with one another in the pursuit of studying the Bible and seeking to glorify the Lord in their lives? And at that time, uh, he and Patricia had a conversation coming into the role of being the president, and they determined that it would be best to change the name of the institution. Not change the doctrine so much, but change the focus by way of the name. And in that conversation, they came up with the name the Master's College. And I remember sitting in one of the very first chapels where John was speaking as a president, and he gave an explanation as to why they chose the name the Master's College. And what he said is based on Luke 6, 40, that basically says that when a student or pupil is mature, he will be like his master. And they said, what we want every student at the master's college to understand is that they're primarily not a student at an institution. They're a student of Christ and wanted the idea of him being master and Lord of our lives, front and center, all day, every day. Every logo, every... description of the institution had this identity of us being students of the Master. And our education came under that conviction and commitment to be a follower of Christ. And it was at that time that an upperclassman took me under his wing and began to disciple me. And it was in the context of that relationship that I saw in his life, but I also had the benefit of him guiding me, speaking to my blind spots, areas that I needed to grow spiritually. And it was in 1985, that first fall of the Master's College, that I began to attend Grace Community Church. And um, for some of you who've been around a long time, you'll remember that Chris Mueller was the college pastor. We called it College Life, not Crossroads back then. And Chris just had a real passion for personal discipleship. And so what was happening at the Master's College, and what was happening at Grace Church was just a strong emphasis and commitment to personal discipleship so that we could all grow in not just knowing the truth, but living the truth. And that's a simple idea of of discipleship. My life was so transformed through that. Some of you know uh, Harry Walls, who serves as an elder here. He was the dean of men at that time, and he took me under his wing, and he began to disciple me Uh, during the period of time I was going to seminary. And so I had a chance to learn from somebody who had pastoral experience, who understood what it meant to love and shepherd people. Uh, He gave a lot of input to my life. There was a lot that needed to be cleaned up and corrected from that kind of faulty orientation towards legalism to a life that really just grew in love and affection for Christ based on the truth of what 's revealed in god 's Word, but then the loving accountability to see that actually lived out in practice and Some of you I see in the room uh, know that experience, having been students or, or alumnus of the master 's college or having been here at Grace Church during those years and So what I share with you is is not intended to just be academic in purpose but it 's really to be an encouragement to you to think about how you can benefit in the context of another relationship with a brother or sister in Christ or part of a group to see what God has begun to do in your work, uh, in your life, is that work that he's promised to complete. And that was one of the promises that we really anchored on in those years. Uh, From the book of Philippians chapter 1, we see Paul promise us that he who began a good work in us will be what? Faithful to complete it. So that process of being made complete in Christ so that we actually glorify him in our lives. I trust you're here because that's your aim. And you're somewhere in that process. And when we think about discipleship, there's a lot of things that make up the inputs to our life. Certainly John's preaching ministry or the pulpit ministry of Grace Church or your fellowship group contributes significantly, doesn't it? To your understanding of God's word and shaping biblical truth and biblical ethics and practice in your own life. But he's also given us the body of Christ, and it's being known and someone who can not just respond to where we see needs for growth spiritually, but they can see our blind spots. And maybe it's that conversation you're having with your friend uh, on the patio, and that person who who knows you well and, and plays a key role in your life of helping you to be like Christ overhears a conversation that falls short of the ideal in tone or in word, and can come along with a loving embrace and just say, you know I love you, I'm committed to you, uh, but I want you to know that what I observed isn't consistent with how I think Christ would speak or how Christ would conduct themselves with another person. And when we do that in a context of, of love and commitment with the aim to glorify Christ, then we are aided in the process of sanctification. It was also the case when... Uh, that upperclassman began to disciple me, he um, labeled me a a lone maverick Christian. I had learned to live my own life very independently, um, and that included spiritually. And so I didn't know what it was like to actually have the kind of relationship that was open and transparent and inviting. I saw people as people to contend with, compete with, be more successful with, you know, And I think we all tend to do that, right, in our pride. And so what we can do is keep people at arm's length so they really don't know the true us. But what God designed for the body is to be known and to be loved just as Christ loved us who knows us perfectly and is committed to see us make progress in our spiritual growth and pursuit. And that can be a fearful thing for a lot of people, to be known in such a way. But it's necessary to be known, to open up your heart, to open your life, and to make sure you're accountable and known by somebody who can walk with you. Because none of us were designed or created to function in independence. We are designed to experience relationship and godly relationships in the context of fellowship and a commitment to love one another with the end to honor Christ. So this just goes totally against our culture. Our culture champions independence, right? We're getting ready to celebrate our independence in a couple of days, and it's very much a part, particularly of the North American uh, or uh, the United States, our cultural ethos. I can do anything I want to do. I can do it by myself. I can can champion this. I can lead here. I can do this. And that can creep into our spiritual lives as well. And that's a danger to us, because that's not what God intended. He gave us one another so that we might participate in what's been termed sanctifying relationships. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Now, what I'm going to do in the time that we have, and we do have a little bit of extra time, so I'm going to take advantage of it. I want to give you, yes, a biblical perspective on discipleship. But I also want to give you a perspective from church history that I think will encourage you greatly. And then you have handouts there. We're going to wrap up by pressing into the very practical aspect. What does discipleship look like? How do you go about it? Uh, What should it look like? What are the components of it? Okay? Now, here's how I work. I have a PowerPoint presentation with far more information than you can possibly write down. Okay? So instead of being anxious, you can write down a few key thoughts. That's great. But let me give you my email address. I will share my PowerPoint with anybody who'd like it. You can decide when we're done if it has value to you, okay? But go ahead and email me. I'll send it to you. You can go back and review it. There's a lot of quotes and statements made in it. But I want you to be able to to sit back and really absorb the flow of thought, the principles that I'm communicating. And this gives me a chance to cover a lot more ground with you, okay? So here's my email address. It's M for Mark, M, my last name, Tatlock, T A T. L O C K M Tatlock at T M A I dot org. M Tatlock at T M A I dot org. All right. Good. Well, we've entitled this The Priority, Pursuit, and Process of Discipleship. And as we consider discipleship I refer to it in this way there's discipleship with a capital D the big idea of discipleship that we see in scripture i'm going to start with that and see it from a biblical and historical perspective and there's what i would term discipleship with the with a small d that's just the practical part of it that we'll get into okay but most people don't understand or maybe aren't familiar with the idea of discipleship with a capital D beyond maybe a couple Bible verses or so. And so that's why I want to show you the Scriptures, but also do it from a clear historical perspective where there were those who really fought and sacrificed to practice discipleship. And I want you to hear their voice this morning and bring it to bear in our own generation. All right? So what we're going to be doing is rediscovering the nature of authentic discipleship. We can't do that without considering the cross itself. So we begin with this statement, the theme of the cross and suffering runs through the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus indicated that each follower would have his cross, and it would in some way be related to the cross of Jesus. This is seen most clearly in Mark's gospel. Jesus told the disciples about his own suffering, death, and resurrection. He then invited any who wished to follow him to take up his own cross and to follow him. So let's turn to Mark chapter 8. And we'll begin reading uh, reading in verse 31. Mark writes, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Verse 34, "'And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, "'If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself "'and take up his cross and follow me. "'For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. "'But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. "'For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? "'For what will a man give in exchange for his soul?' For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And if you listen to John the last hour, he referenced this same principle. There's a cost involved with following Christ. And why is this important to start with this? Because today, in Christianity, the most popular form of Gospel presentation and presentation of the church is an easy believism. Jesus loves you and he doesn't want you to go to hell. Those are both wonderful and precious truths. But rarely do we have a full presentation of the gospel that starts with the law, our inability to meet God's holy and just standard. Therefore, yes, we are at risk of judgment, but he saved us into a relationship with him a relationship in which he can actually fellowship with us he uses the the terms in john 15 to abide in him but that kind of intimate personal relationship with christ requires of us to follow in his footsteps that's what peter says in 1 peter chapter 2 follow in his steps well his steps were steps of what sacrifice and suffering to see the will of God accomplished. And that's why Peter's struggling in this text. He's like, whoa, wait a second. If you are the son of God, why are you talking about suffering? You should rule and reign. Remember what the expectations of the Jews were, that there would be a king who would come and set up his kingdom, and he would vanquish or overturn or overrule the unjust Roman rulers at that time. And so this didn't make sense to Peter. And Christ confronts him and corrects him, and then he gathers the crowd of disciples around, he says, let me redefine your expectations. See, if you're going to follow me, you need to walk in my footsteps. And so for serious Christians, genuine Christians, authentic Christians, they need to understand that a call to follow Christ is not a call, just of comfort and ease and personal blessing. It is one where everything needs to be brought under the lordship and authority of Christ. And it will be costly if you follow his example, and you will find yourselves often as the object of opposition, ridicule, and in many times throughout church history, even death. Is that what you're up for? That kind of commitment to Christ? Or do you have an easy believism, a little country club perspective of the Christian life? If you go back to the New Testament we see something entirely different that's what Christ presents to us and so we have to begin with the cross we go on to note Matthew reports Jesus's words concerning the family divisions that will come because of the gospel this is followed by the warning that the worthy follower is the one who takes his Christ and follows him and we won't turn there but you can note the text in Matthew chapter 10 he calls the disciples out where are your true loyalties Are they here with earthly priorities? Even the importance and value of family? Or do you love me more? Will you count the cost even to the extent that you might lose family relationships for being identified with me? And in that context, he reminds them that you need to be prepared to take up a cross if you're going to follow me. This is a high calling. Yes, it's a noble calling, But it's a calling that has to be framed with a biblical understanding, not a cultural or popular Christianity sense of calling. Many of our missionaries around the world work in contexts where to commit your life to Christ, it's very clear that there's going to be a cost. There is going to be suffering. For us who, until now, have lived in a relatively very convenient, comfortable Judeo-Christian cultural society, There may be challenges to the gospel, but typically they might just come in the form of neglect or people mocking or something like that. But when you actually face a choice to lose family and a choice possibly to give your life to follow Christ, it's very clear to you what the call is. And that was true during the New Testament times and would become very true after Christ ascended and his disciples now would become apostles leading the church, and they were going to have to set an example for the church, even to the point of death. So we need to exchange an American cultural Christianity perspective on discipleship to a biblical and a historical perspective, okay? You're like, I didn't think I was up for that when I came to this seminar, but we're going to start right there, okay? Okay. Repeated in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, is the statement, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. What does deny mean? Submit himself. We are to submit ourselves to the point of denying all of our lesser, worldly, fleshly ambitions, our ideologies, our philosophies, our way of thinking, We are to deny ourselves completely. And in so doing, we take on the very cross of Christ. That's what it means to be his follower. And then he restates, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. What a paradox, right? That doesn't make sense to us. Wait, I'm going to give up my life, everything that I hold dear? That just sounds too costly. If we're honest, we're very anxious and fearful about doing that. But what he promises in exchange is something that is far richer, far more profitable, far more beneficial than whatever you might accomplish pursuing your own lesser ambitions. You're going to gain what is eternal, what is ultimate in relationship with God now and for all, eternity See, if we really understood what God has in store for us, the price is not a great price. It's a small price. And so part of what we have to think about when we present the gospel is just a sober and serious call to be willing to suffer and make Christ Lord, but also to understand not just what we're saved from by way of judgment, but what we're saved to. A rich, abundant perfectly loving relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Does anything that we might seek after in this life compare to that? And some of us a little older in the room who lived life a little longer than the others have come to learn that all those youthful, idealistic aims and ambitions really don't hold for us the sole satisfaction that we were created to enjoy. There is only one who satisfies, and that is Christ himself. So really, there's nothing that we're giving up. We're gaining everything in exchange. But maybe we don't always think that way, or maybe we don't think that way consistently. And so part of becoming a disciple of Christ is growing in maturity to understand that and seeing everything in this life in view of the eternal perspective. Going on, This comes from John Martin in a book entitled Ventures in Discipleship. Luke places the emphasis on Jesus' insistence on counting the cost before deciding to follow, because to follow truly means bearing one's own cross. It is significant to observe that in each of these passages, an individual's cross and following Jesus are brought together. So Martin's restating this idea. But he makes a particular point of emphasis, and this is where I think we failed uh, in some part in our own... Uh, evangelistic presentation of the gospel. When Christ called his disciples to follow him, he stated the expectation up front. Take up your cross. That's right. Deny yourself. Some of us uh, grew up in a context, I certainly did, where the, the emphasis on progressive sanctification unintentionally led us to believe like, well, maybe tomorrow I'll be a little bit more like Jesus. Maybe tomorrow... I'll be a little bit more sacrificial. Maybe tomorrow I'll be more committed to Christ as Lord. That's not a New Testament perspective. It's coming to faith in Christ begins with an understanding of what it means to follow him and to deny yourself. And when that, there is such a thing as progressive sanctification, I alluded to it earlier, that work that God began, he will be faithful to complete it. Right, We're limited, we're finite, we live in the context of time. God looks down on us and from a positional sanctification, sees us made complete and perfect. Okay, He views us through the person of Christ and his work that has been uh, accomplished for us in his atonement. And we rejoice in that. But sometimes this idea of progressive sanctification, we actually presume upon it, or let's just say we treat in a very cavalier, casual way and the idea is always, well, someday I'll get devoted to Christ. I got into the kingdom, he saved me, and then someday he'll become Lord. And if there's one thing our pastor has been committed to <laughs> over the last decades, it has been very clear that coming to Christ requires that he is not just your Savior, but he is also your Lord. And where is that truth illustrated? It's illustrated in these very passages that we're referencing. And so we need to understand maybe we're 10 years into our Christian life, maybe 20 years into our Christian life, and you still haven't really wrestled with the fact of the lordship of Christ in your life. And you need to do that. Otherwise, any pursuit on the practical side, of being discipled by another person, and you've got that kind of casual you know, maybe tomorrow I'll get serious, it really is not going to be productive. It's not going to be beneficial and it really won't even be authentic you've got to come and lay down everything now when you enter into a relationship with somebody else who understands that and is also committed to that okay nothing is taboo nothing is off the table because we've surrendered everything and denying to Christ and that's why we can invite somebody else to help us work through some of those deep seated patterns of sin. That we seek to conceal from others. Well, let's go on. Martin says this Christ identified the cross as a central symbol for viewing his life of suffering as he encountered a world of unbelief and evil. This is what it costs to follow the will of the Father. This is also what it will cost for believers to follow the will of the Son. What does it mean then to live the life of the kingdom? Jesus made it plain that God's kingdom with its righteousness and justice should be the first quest of all who follow him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? This is what lordship looks like. Seeking him first and placing everything under his aim of making us righteous. Martin observes, though, how little the church today, especially in North America, gives any concrete signs of taking Jesus' words seriously. One of the ways that we see this, too, is not just that casual approach or the presumption of progressive sanctification, but it's the duality that we might live. When I'm at church or at my home, I line everything according to biblical principles. But then when I go to work, I just kind of ignorantly or naively follow along the, the ethics of society in my workplace, whether it's in the healthcare industry or that's in business or journalism or athletics, whatever it might be. And a lot of believers... Five to six days of the week are living according to a set of principles or philosophies that aren't consistent with your biblical convictions. And so part of discipleship, and I'll comment later, is learning, particularly from older Christians in your industry, how to stand for Christ, how to live for Christ in the context of your own field. Or if not, your industry, your season of life. As you go through different seasons of life, it might be single, marriage, it might be as a parent, it might be as a grandparent, what is it that you want to make sure you understand is the practice of biblical principles in that season of life or that place of life that God has set you? Otherwise, you have this kind of duality going on. And um, a lot of times, I would describe sanctification simply as editing out the lies I still choose to believe renewing my mind, beginning to think like Christ, in accord with the Scripture and the aid of the Holy Spirit, and beginning to recognize the inconsistencies in my life. And so, in taking our call to follow Christ seriously, it's a call to be discerning. It's a call then to look and examine our life and to submit everything under His Lordship. Martin goes on and says, the key link between our lives and the kingdom of God is discipleship. What it means to live authentically as Jesus' disciples has been shown in flesh with blood at various points in history. And so looking at this term discipleship, it came to be used uh, most frequently during a period of the Reformation. And so I want to begin by taking this definition of discipleship. I'll give you another one a little bit later. But We're talking about discipleship with a capital D. See what I mean by this? This idea of Christ as Lord. So Martin observes again, the term discipleship refers to the Anabaptist concept of the Christian life as a daily following of Christ by bringing the whole of one's life under his lordship. How many of you have heard of the Anabaptists before? A lot of you, right? We're going back to the period of Luther, and what was taking place at that time with regard to a challenging of the teaching of justification within the context of the Catholic Church. Okay? But it was the case, and we'll see in a moment more clearly, that they maintained the practice of infant baptism. What that meant is there were people in the pews who weren't genuinely saved. So now you've got this duality, you've got this confusion in the context of the church. I'd say it another way, the way people lived and, and identified themselves with Christ did not have integrity for all. Okay. So the Anabaptists, recognizing the need for sound biblical churches comprised of genuine believers in Christ, put the emphasis back on baptism, believers' baptism. Okay? That's this group that we're talking about, led originally by a gentleman named Zwingli and his disciples. Okay? So that's the group of Anabaptists that we're referring to. The Anabaptists, Martin goes on uh, to say, used the German term, Nachfolge Christe, which is just the German uh, translation of following Christ or discipleship. And it was central to their understanding of the Christian life and to their theology. Now, just to make a comment about the Anabaptists, as a seminary graduate, I had not studied much of the Anabaptists. I was real familiar with the classic reformers, um, but not so much the Anabaptists. And because my area of particular interest is in missions, uh, I was speaking to one of the seminary professors, and he said, have you really studied the history of missions and how the history of missions can be directly tied back to the Anabaptists? Not that there wasn't a missions emphasis among the classic reformers, but the real modern missions movement was birthed out of the Anabaptists. And I said, no, I haven't studied that. So he recommended some books. I went down the bookshack, shack, picked them up, began to read. And what I began to understand about the Anabaptists is because they saw the necessity for churches that were comprised of only genuine believers, that didn't exist with the Catholic Church. The classic reformers were focused on bringing reform internally. Catholic means universal. The Catholic Church had been spread throughout uh, the empire at that point, the known world. Uh, there's a long history of Catholic missions. So you can understand why somebody like Luther wasn't so focused on missions itself because the church existed among the nations for, in large part. What he was concerned about is the authenticity of the gospel message and how it had been corrupted by the Catholic church. So their focus was on justification. Okay. Now at the same time, there was this idea of Christendom going all the way back to uh, the period of Constantine, when he issued the Edict of Toleration in the 300s that made Christianity the state religion. When that happened, there was no distinction between church and state. Okay? And the key to being in Christendom, being a citizen of the kingdom under Constantine as ruler, was infant baptism. That's okay? so why you baptized your children as citizens of the state because this was how you were going to uh, assured that they identified with Christianity and the state, okay? Now, fast forward 1,200 years, and there was still no distinction between church and state, even though you had different nations and kings and so forth, okay? And um, and so this idea of infant baptism was something that the early classic reformers knew. If they started there in confronting that, they would actually be not just enemies of the pope, they would be enemies of the king. And so where they put their primary emphasis was on the issue of justification, trying to make sure that people who were in the church really were genuinely converted. Okay? The Anabaptists looked at that and said, you know what, we don't think that's the best way to go. You're going to have to actually deal with the issue of what baptism signifies, and that is death, burial, and resurrection in Christ authentic conversion, and then see churches established that are comprised of genuine believers. That meant they needed to start planting churches, and eventually they need to start sending out missionaries to establish churches among other ethnic and cultural groups. Okay, so that's the brief history of the influence of the Anabaptists. I was sitting with our pastor years ago, and I was starting to read these things, and I said, boy, you know, I haven't really studied a lot of the Anabaptists, and he stopped me, and he says, well, you need to understand, we have a reformed soteriology, meaning what we teach on salvation and justification, but we actually have an Anabaptist ecclesiology. I said, actually, no, I didn't understand that. And he said, if you really look at our commitment to what the church is comprised of authentic believers, then it, it is more in line with the Anabaptist convictions and practice than the classic reformers. And that gave me permission to study and to read more, and some of what I'm sharing with you came out of that investigation. But even today at Grace Church, we stand in this very same uh, tradition uh, of thinking, meaning, it's more than tradition, it's biblical, but you understand what I'm saying. When you become a member of Grace Church, what is it that we ask you to do? We don't just let anybody in. We want to make sure that you have a sound profession of genuine faith in Christ and that you're baptized. And what do we enjoy on Sunday nights? These wonderful and rich testimonies, right? And it's a a beautiful thing that we're still practicing today in our generation, consistent with what we're studying this morning, that to be a genuine member of the body of Christ, a recognized member of the body of Christ, public profession of identifying with the body of Christ is tied back to the idea of believer's baptism, okay? So we'll see that now. But this is tracing us back to the Anabaptist influence. And what drove them was an understanding of what we're talking about today, discipleship with a capital D. You're either in or you're out of the kingdom. And if you're in, you're all in. It's not a casual. It's not a... Uh, passive, it's not a uh, just future-looking perspective, it's today. I am submitting myself to the Lordship of Christ. All right, Martin helps us by saying the term discipling refers to the process of helping Christian disciples understand and follow the call of Christ in their total lives as members of his body. While the Anabaptists did not have a planned program of discipling, The phenomenon took place through the intense form of their congregational and community life. This is the life of the church, okay? What he means by this is discipleship wasn't just show up at 11 o'clock on Thursday morning to go through one-hour book study. Now, that has its place, and we'll get to that. Looking at who the Anabaptists are, the Anabaptists themselves, uh, it's a compound word. In Greek, ana means again, baptizo means to baptize and thus, they were those who re-baptized. Who were they re-baptizing? People who have been uh, brought into the church under infant baptism. But in making a sincere profession of faith in Christ, they believe they need to be re-baptized. So, anabaptism means re-baptizing. And the term comes from the practice of baptizing individuals who had been baptized previously, often as infants. And therefore, they believe that infant baptism was not valid. All right? Now Harold Bender, uh, in a helpful book, Anabaptist Theology of Discipleship, says this: In essence, the discipleship which the Anabaptists proclaimed was simply the bringing of the whole life under the lordship of Christ, and the transformation of this life. There was an expectation of spiritual growth, vibrancy, expression of real faith in practice. And this was not just personal in their own quiet devotional life, but it was social, meaning in the context of their relationships, either in their family, their home, at work, in society, in community, wherever they were, there was no duality. There was integrity, a conviction and commitment. And from this point of view, they subjected not only the church, but the whole social and cultural order to criticism, not being critical but genuine criticism, mean having discernment, evaluating all things as to whether they are in accord with biblical truth. So they wanted to submit everything to this kind of critique. Then the call in discipleship was to reject what they found to be contrary to Christ. That's that editing out, taking out of your life the way of thinking and action that is not consistent with the truth and then attempt to put into actual practice Christ's teachings as they understood them both ethically and sociologically. Now, those are fancy words. What they simply mean ethically means what is true, okay, and your values that are derived from that. Sociologically, all he's saying is it had to be lived out, okay? You might think it's the simple concept, not simple, but but the concept that is clear in Scripture of just wisdom, right? Right? There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is truth. And you might possess knowledge. But what's wisdom? It's the practicing of the truth for a life of integrity. He goes on, the person who took up the new calling generally gave up the old one. That's that exchange, right? And Christ said, you can't serve two masters. The person who took up the new calling generally gave up the old one. Therefore, the so-called rich young ruler failed at this point, didn't he? He wasn't willing to do that. However, the disciples need to stay open to new calls of obedience. The disciple needed to accept the same future as his master, and the expectation of suffering became a part of discipleship. The readiness to suffer is only made possible through the self-denial, which consists in freedom from oneself and all forms of personal security. Such self-denial is possible only when man gives himself to God in unconditional discipleship. And the term unconditional, right, is important for us to think about. Do we still place conditions on God? I'll obey you if. I'll love you if. We have a very transactional approach in our relationship with the Lord. Someone who understands discipleship with the capital D does not contend with God that way. God, you are sovereign. You are the authority in my life. Whatever you want. And so when we talk about unconditional discipleship, it's pointing back to this idea of him as the authority of our lives. Well, Martin, again, says the reward of discipleship was fellowship with God. That's what I said earlier. A share in the authority of Jesus in a new and future life, not just personal merit. You see that illustrated in texts like Matthew 16 or John 14. Dietrich Mueller, speaking of this, said the essence of discipleship lies in the disciple's fulfillment of his duty to be a witness to his Lord in his entire life. So it's, it's just a restatement of this principle, but here by one of the church leaders at the time. Or Hans Deck, who said, Woe to him who looks elsewhere other than this goal. For whoever thinks he belongs to Christ must walk the way that Christ walked. Just a restatement of those principles. Now John Stott, some of you might recognize or have read even his book, Basic Christianity, says, thus, in order to follow Christ, we have to deny ourselves, to crucify ourselves, to lose ourselves. The full inexorable demand of Jesus Christ is now laid bare. He does not call us to a sloppy half-heartedness, but to a vigorous absolute commitment. He invites us to make him our Lord. And the astonishing idea is current in some circles today that we can enjoy the benefits of Christ's salvation without accepting the challenge of his sovereign lordship. So John stopped borrowing from the same historic line of thinking and interpretation of Scripture. Speaking of baptism, as I alluded to, Menno Simon said this in early Anabaptists, "...the regenerate therefore lead a penitent and new life, for they are renewed in Christ and have received a new heart and spirit. Once they were earthly-minded, now heavenly. Once they were carnal, now spiritual. Once they were unrighteous, now righteous. Once they were evil, now good." And they no longer live after the old corrupted nature of the first earthly Adam, but after the new upright nature of the new and heavenly Adam, Christ Jesus. Even as Paul says, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In baptism they bury their sins in the Lord's death and rise with him to a new life. Harold Bender said, external water baptism is the declaration to the church in agreement with the believer that the experience described in Romans 6 has actually occurred. The candidate for baptism must therefore be capable of making the required commitment to Christ and must openly confess that this has happened. As a rite of initiation, baptism matches the union with Christ by incorporation into the visible fellowship of believers. And sometimes when I get to do baptism, I'll make a simple statement that baptism is much more than a step of obedience. That's tragically what we've reduced baptism to in our churches today. I get saved, and then I gotta check off that list of standing in front of all these people and going underwater, and, and so we just see it as something to get through. It's so much more than that. It is the picture of what has happened by way of the transformation of our lives. And when you understand discipleship, in the New Testament with a capital D, then baptism is the perfect illustration. I've died to myself. I've died with Christ. I've been buried. And here's the beauty. I've been raised in newness of life. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Newness of life. I live a resurrected life today. I was reading through um, Steve Nichols' book a number of years ago, Heaven on Earth. I recommend it to you. It's it's easy to read, but it's a treatment of uh, Jonathan Edwards' uh, uh, particular sermon on this topic. And what... Stephen helps us understand from Edwards and, of course, from Scripture is eternal life begins at the point of salvation. That means at the point that Christ rescued me and I surrendered my life to him, I'm actually living eternal life. Yes, I'm still bound by this body, okay, and one day I'll be freed from this body. But what it does is it removes the excuse in our thinking that, oh, Somewhere in the future, I'll take seriously living in eternal life. Someday in the future, I'll get serious about Christ as my Lord. See, the picture of baptism and that public profession is saying to the entire church, this is who I am in Christ, and I'm making myself accountable to you, the body. That's what I said earlier, the community of believers that we were created to have sanctifying relationships with. So therefore, any area of my life that you observe, if I'm sincere in saying I brought it all into the Lordship of Christ, I should invite and I should welcome any even loving confrontation with the aim of restoration, Galatians 6.1, right? Do you know how much easier it would be to deal with one another and the sin in our lives if we actually asked and invited people to address our sin? Instead of trying to present ourselves as having it all together, and then when somebody has the courage enough to actually say something to us, and we hope they do it in a spirit of gentleness, but even if they don't, if it's true, and our chief end is to be like Christ and make him Lord, should we not invite and welcome that instead of respond defensively, argumentatively, let our pride dictate our response to that? Is it any fun to have somebody point out your flaws and your sin? No, it's not. but if I believe that's going to help me be like Christ, and I long for that more than my own reputation, should I not just welcome it? I should invite it. And that's the dynamic of a biblical church that understands what baptism signifies and what discipleship with a capital D is. Some of us need to become those who stop being defensive and shielding ourselves and inviting others to say, what do you see in my life that's not like Christ? There's no risk in that because if you're anchored in the perfect love of Christ, this conditional transactional understanding of relationships gets shattered. It doesn't really matter. Ultimately, if you like me, or even respect me, or think highly of me. Because Christ knows me in all my wickedness, all my flaws, and he lavishes love on me, and I'm secure in him. You want to talk to me about my shortcomings? Okay. If that helps me be like my Lord, then I want to hear from you. I want to welcome that. I'll tell you what, that would change... A lot of our lives, wouldn't it? That person that you're troubled by, the sin in their life, if they actually came to you and said, "What do you see in my life, that needs to change?" <laughs> so this is what discipleship looks like, by way, with a capital D in the context of the church. Well, let's keep moving. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. <laughs> now, this idea of suffering, OK? Let me go back. James Boyce says this. There's a fatal flaw in the processing of professing church today, a lack of true discipleship. Discipleship is talked about, of course. There are books about it, particularly about what is called discipling other people. Words are not the problem. What is lacking is the thing itself. But what are we to say about this next theme? The need for self-denial expresses taking up the cross. In this area, it is not only self-denial that is lacking. It is an area which we do not even speak of. What he's saying is we've reduced discipleship to this discipleship with a small d concept. It's just this activity or this program or this process without understanding this larger context for how discipleship is treated in the scriptures. Okay, he goes on. Boyce says, this would be puzzling to saints who live before us. If they could observe us today, they would never understand how we can profess to follow Jesus and at the same time ignore self-denial because to them, self-denial would seem to be the very essence of what it means to be Christ. Today, some argue about faithful preaching of the word and faithful administration of the sacraments as marks. To these, some would add church discipline, like us. What a shock it would be to many who stop at this point to learn that Martin Luther, among others, considered suffering to be a mark of the church and badge of discipleship. One of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the drafting of the Augsburg Confession, which is the chief doctrinal statement of the Lutheran Uh, Communions defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Did you see that in your application to membership at Grace Church? We need to understand that's exactly what the scriptures say. The definition seems extreme to easygoing, materialistic Christians, but it's not extreme in view of Christ's words to those whom he challenged to come after him. Again, to these he said... If anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Boyce says, this is the hard saying of Jesus about discipleship. We can perhaps handle the call to follow him, particularly if we do not think too deeply about what following Jesus Christ means. Now, can I illustrate this for a moment, and then we're going to get to this practical part? That's right. It's it's a fresco of a saint being beheaded. Had a chance years ago, uh, we were setting up a study program in the country of Greece, and we were turning around the historical sites, and we went to a place called Meteora that has a whole, um, has a number of Greek Orthodox monasteries set way up on cliffs. And we went inside this chapel in one of those monasteries. And if you've been in an Orthodox church, you see this in Catholic churches, but particularly Orthodox churches, uh, you'll walk in, and you'll see that In their chapels, there are basically four levels of frescoes. It's consistent in almost all of them. And the first level is going to tell some of the stories from the Old Testament. okay? And then maybe the second level is going to tell some stories uh, from the prophets and, and so forth. And then you get to the third level, and it's illustrations of the life of Christ. But you know what the top level is in every one of those chapels, the frescoes? It's this imagery of martyrs those who understood what true discipleship was and gave their life for Christ. Now, I'm not affirming orthodox theology. I'm just pointing back to a time in history. These chapels are are ancient chapels. And because the people were illiterate, they couldn't read the Bible. At that point, it was the priest who uh, did all the teaching from the text. What they did is they used these frescoes in the chapels as their chalkboard, like a teacher would use a chalkboard or dry erase board, and they would tell the stories of the scripture to people who couldn't read and write. But what stood out to me was these scenes. Here's a beheading. These are also beheadings. And these were actual stories of saints who gave their life for the gospel. Imagine coming to worship in that context. And what was before you every time you came was an illustration that to follow Christ meant a willingness to suffer and even die for him. That's what we need to regain. Because when you had that kind of commitment to follow Christ at all costs, it puts everything in perspective. In one sense, who cares if you get a promotion at work or not? Because that's not what you live for. There's nothing wrong with doing your work to the glory of God with integrity and excellence and being promoted and earning enough to live in Southern California and pay your bills, your gas bill, and everything else. But what happens so often, and being facetious, we adopt those worldly aims as our primary ambitions in life. If you're secure in Christ and his will for you is to die early, or to lose your job and be humbled and place in another place of work or service. He's promised to meet all of your needs if you seek him first, right? You're set free then. And and the testimony of the early church, if you go back even during the period of the New Testament times, it was believers who understood discipleship with a capital D who risked their life to go out into the highways and byways and to, to care for those Who were victims of a plague or war or whatever it was, because they had this idea I've already died. I'm living a resurrected life. They can't do anything but to take my body. And like Paul, if they do, then I get to be with Christ. That's even better. But they lived in such clarity of understanding of this principle of discipleship, it governed their lives in such a way that they were free to count the cost. This was true of so many generations of missionaries who went to places that, uh, you know, they were at risk of, of being attacked and killed by cannibals and things like that. But because they understood what discipleship was from the New Testament, they went. If the aim was to make Christ known and to see the honor of his name extended among the nations, we are so bound by our fears and our small ambitions that God isn't able to use us in the way that he could use us. As we talk about the essential church, as as we think through what we've been through and the challenge in our own society, it is coming to us to have to think seriously about discipleship with a capital D. There's a lot of people in the room today probably who've either lost their jobs or have stepped away from their jobs because they can no longer go to work and live and practice ethics that are inconsistent with biblical truth? That's the tension we're beginning to feel. Or what does it mean to stand for biblical truth and do that with great risk? So we need to recover and understand discipleship in this fashion so that we can be found faithful in our own generation. And when this is the case, David Watson says, when the church commits itself to a pattern of corporate life based on radical biblical principles, It will immediately challenge the moral, political, economic, and social structures of the world around it. Thus, by its very existence, the church becomes both prophetic, meaning this is what the kingdom looks like in the sense of how we live with one another in a godly way. We give the world a picture of that. Okay, That's what he means, prophetic. And evangelistically, we point to Christ because they see him in us. And only in this way will the proclamation of the gospel make much impact among the vast majority of people who at this moment, are thoroughly disillusioned with the church as an institution. Why? I mean, look at the mainline denominations of the churches. They're no different than the general society. They haven't rejected the heresy and the false teaching or the social agenda. They look just like the world. And genuine believers who are looking for the truth are disillusioned with the church as an institution. And for this reason, it is impossible to separate the call to discipleship, the call to community, and the call to mission. Without a strong commitment to discipleship, there can be no authentic Christian community. And without such a community, there can be no effective mission. Meaning, if the church doesn't look like Christ, our gospel witness is invalidated. Because there's no evidence that that truth has transformed our lives. And if there's no evidence in the life of the church, why would I believe what you're telling me, the promise of the gospel? And so, discipleship with a capital D is essential to the church's witness. And that's true today. Now, take your hand out in the time we have left here and let's bring it home. <laughs> How do we go about this and have these kinds of relationships with each other to aid one another? In our pursuit of Christ likeness, so that our mission can be effective, our testimony can be clear. Well, Alan Hadidian, some of you have been around a long time, might remember Alan. He was on staff here. He wrote a book on discipleship, and I borrowed from him for years, and I will today. Alan said this Discipling others is the process, he's now talking about the discipleship with a small d, the the process, by which a Christian with a life worth emulating, being somebody who's seeking to live a life with Christ as their Lord, commits themselves for an extended period of time to a few individuals who have been one to Christ, meaning genuine believers. The purpose being to aid and guide their growth to maturity and equip them to reproduce themselves in a third spiritual generation. This has been God's plan for his church from the outset. This, by the way, is, is taking these slides straight from your handout. So you can follow along there uh, on the first page. There's two uh, papers, by the way. One starts with the definition of discipleship. The other are practical steps. So I'm sorry if not everybody got the second one. Um, there's a few left in the in the back, I think. If not, if you don't have it, email me. I'll send it to you, okay? Or you can steal one from your friend. But they might confront you. Okay. Um, so what's Alan saying? He said, boy, this... This practice of discipleship is a commitment that's being made by somebody who themselves is devoted to serving Christ as Lord. When we look at the term discipleship in Scripture, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes. And what it means is a learner or a pupil. And it implies that the disciple is an apprentice. I love that word. We've kind of lost that in our society. I remember when I was young in elementary school, one of the books assigned to me was the story of Johnny Tremaine. Has anybody read the story of Johnny Tremaine? All right, you're my people, a few of you, okay? It's a fictional account of a young boy who was apprenticed to Paul Revere as a silversmith. And I remember reading that account, and and here's a man, Paul Revere, who was esteemed for his skills as a silversmith, okay? He brought into his home this young boy with the single aim to teach him everything that he knew so that one day he could be excellent as a silversmith himself. That's the idea of apprenticeship, and it's it's true in a lot of cultures. It's not as much here because we've kind of isolated the idea of apprenticeship with higher education. You go to college, you get a degree, and then you go get experience in the workplace. But in most vocational fields, they apprenticeship is the model, and that's what we're referring to here um, in the life of the church. It's seeing one as a learner or a pupil that you want to impart your life to. And in the context of spiritually, uh, practicing discipleship, that they might be fully mature in Christ. So some text to remind us of, 1 Corinthians 4.16. Discipleship in this sense is learning to imitate Christ, following his footsteps. And this is the language we read by Paul, particularly 1 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, I urge you to what? Imitate me. Follow my example. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy. And I love this text. You go, okay, Paul, I want to follow your example. And then he says, I'm sending you Timothy. How could he do that? Because he had poured his life into Timothy. And he knew that Timothy would present to those that he sent them with an example to follow that was consistent with him, okay? But then Paul goes further in chapter 11, verse 1, and reminds us he's not just following man's example, he says, follow my example to the extent as I follow what? The example of Christ. So this is the lineage of discipleship throughout the history of the church. Christ to the apostles, to their disciples, and in each generation, calling them to follow that same example. But see, my example is only valuable to the extent it's consistent with Christ. So what does that require of me as being a discipler? It's accountability to make sure that my life is practicing the lordship of Christ, okay? So again, there's some practical things we'll get to by way of the program aspect of it, or how do you meet and what do you do? But the big idea here is follow my example as I seek to follow the example of Christ. And I would say that an honest discipler, when there's areas they fall short, point out to their disciple and say, but don't do this. (laughs) There's that transparency and honesty. Say, you know, this is an area that, that it's not consistent with Christ. And I need to repent and I need to grow here. Be an example, if not perfectly of Christ, be an example of how you should respond to sin in your life by true repentance. Okay? Um, And so the idea is to reflect Christ. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, but also here in verse 6. You became imitators of us and the Lord. And so you became a model to all believers. Okay? Now listen. A lot of you are sitting there going, I can never disciple anybody. I am not a perfect example of Christ. Well, he wouldn't entrust his church with this responsibility if that was the ultimate standard. He is the standard, okay? But we're in process as well, okay? And uh, it's kind of like parenting. Parenting is a lot. It is discipleship, of course. But I remember at, at times early on going to instruct and discipline one of my children, and every word that was coming out of my mouth, I could just hear the Lord speaking to me. And it's that same way with discipleship in the church. You might be speaking truth, but you're realizing that truth still needs to be applied in my own life, okay? So we're all growing together. All right, now, who are the people? Well, you can look at those texts there. It begins with true converts. That's why you see Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. As you're going out, make disciples, right? beginning with converts, now you understand why baptism is critical to the Great Commission. Because it's the introducing to the life of the church. In that context, then you're taught to what? Observe all that I commanded you. See, when you understand this principle, you understand the Great Commission. The problem in a lot of missionary work today is we're focused on just making converts but not making disciples. And there are a lot of people who are being introduced to Christ and only being left vulnerable to every kind of heresy, false teaching, confusion. And it's a tragedy because those people are not people committed to biblical discipleship and the church. And so convert, baptize into the life of the church, making that public profession, and then accountable to the body of believers to submit themselves to all that Christ has instructed us. We see this in 2 Timothy 2.2, the people, there are people who are teachable, people who want to grow, people who are eager to learn, who are humble. And we see in Titus 2, also this practice, of course, many of us have heard lessons on the older to the younger. It's interesting, when you go to Titus 2, it's discipleship that's occurring in a context where there's radical transformation occurring in the life of these people. First, chapter 1 talks about the qualifications of spiritual leaders, elders, But in chapter 1, we read there that these people from Crete were known as what? Liars, gluttons. I mean, their reputation is as hedonistic, barbaric as you can imagine. And these are the people? These are going to be men who meet the qualifications for spiritual eldership? That's the power of the gospel, to transform a life. Titus was sent to disciple future elders and leaders of that church. And then he comes into chapter 2, and he says, listen, older need to take the younger under their arm and make sure it's generational, okay? In the context of every one of those statements of older to younger with regard to discipleship, there's a purpose statement. And the purpose statement is so that you live a life. All five purpose statements can be summarized in saying so that you live a life that does not bring reproach on Christ, that does not invalidate your gospel witness, because they had an entire island to reach of Cretans and beyond. So discipleship wasn't just for their benefit. It was the work God wanted to do, yes, in their life, but through them, advance and impart the gospel and sanctification to others. So you need to understand, we, have ten, we tend to have a very, um, well, selfish orientation, certainly as, as sinners, but even culturally, we're, we're very consumer-oriented. And so we can think about sanctification in terms about just self-benefit. But you know, there's a a greater purpose in God's work of sanctification in our lives beyond you. Are there blessings that come with fellowship and unhindered prayer and, and so many wonderful things that come with living a holy life? Absolutely, because we serve a gracious and merciful God. But that's not the end of it. He wants us to be holy so that the world can see our lives and be drawn to know Christ. This is what John says in First John chapter four, "No man has seen the Father, but if you love one another, you will reveal him to others." This is First Peter chapter two. As you practice your good deeds before men, they will come to see your behavior, and they will come to glorify the Father." See, our sanctification is essential to our mission. All right Anyways, the purpose, what is it, and you know these texts, to transform us that we're presented holy that we would have the mind of Christ and it's not just the mind but Philippians 2 says if you have the mind of Christ then what you think more highly of others than yourself it's it's in practice following his example of dying to himself and then Colossians 1 as Paul says the end of our whole ministry is to present every man complete in Christ okay so those are some high level ideas about what we're trying to accomplish the next handout you have and I won't go through the whole thing but I'm just going to illustrate, Um, comes from an outline that I borrow from Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's a book that's been around probably for 40 years, still my favorite. In looking at the Gospels and, and categorizing, how did Christ actually come alongside the disciples and help them grow to the place that he would leave them and they would carry on his work? Well, the first is selection. Christ chose his disciples. And I like to say there's something powerful about an invitation. Some of what we've lost today out of maybe a false humility is I could never approach somebody and offer to disciple them. They may think I'm arrogant. I think too highly of myself. Okay? Well, if you think like Christ and you're humble, that's not really the condition of your heart. You're coming to serve that person. Okay? It's going to be costly. But have you ever been invited by somebody? To sit next to you at a meal when you were alone, or to sit by you at church, or to join you for an activity or event, that's life-changing, right? To extend an invitation to somebody, and it's certainly life-changing when you extend an invitation to be a part of a, a discipleship ministry. And so when we think about inviting others, it goes two ways. It might be a person who desires to be discipled to ask or extend an invitation to be discipled to somebody else. So how do you choose a discipler? Well, one, recognize you need one, okay? Stop living an independent, maverick, lone ranger Christian life like I was, okay? Be in prayer that God would lead you and prepare that person, okay? He wants this more than you do. And then step out in faith and pursue. Look for somebody you respect, that you desire to emulate spiritually, not perfect. But are dedicated to serving Christ, someone who you can see the expression in their home and in their life, the quality of Christ's likeness, someone who can understand how you're uniquely gifted and help you understand how to demonstrate that in service and your potential for ministry uh, in church and, and in your vocation. And then here's one, and this is where we struggle the most: who has actual time for you? We're such a busy, busy people. This is where we struggle the most to practice discipleship. But if we are all committed to it, we would carry that that responsibility uh, in a broader sense and help one another. Once you find that person and they're willing to uh, allow you to invite them into into your life, make a commitment to submit to their leadership. Because they're going to point things out in your life if you let them, and you can't be wishy-washy. If you're going to submit to them, submit to them. If they're going to point out things in your life, time doesn't afford me an opportunity to give you examples from my own life, but there are many times I was called to just trust the Lord, submit to the counsel I was given, and I knew it was good counsel. It was consistent with the Bible. The issue is whether or not I wanted to actually change. And um, thank the Lord for the patience of those who did disciple me. And then be honest about what your struggles really are. Okay, Don't, don't try to pretend and put on a false image before them. Well, flip it around. If you're the discipler, you need to recognize there's a need for you, okay? Be in prayer. You might have somebody refer somebody to you, make a recommendation, or you may just make an observation. That person needs help, and I need to open up my life to serve them this way. And then pursue them, and you can see the kinds of things you're looking for in that sense. And then make a commitment to them. This isn't just, I'm going to meet once a week. I'm, I'm committing my life to you. That means you have my cell phone number. You can text me 24-7. It means I'm available to you. I'm going to invite you into my life. Uh, I'm going to invite you into my home, and we're going to share life together. Um, and then you be honest and transparent and so forth. Now, sometimes you don't know when you initiate this who's going to be really faithful and committed. So maybe invite a group of people, three, four people to meet regularly and just have a, a, a baseline of faithfulness. We're just going to meet for two hours on you know, Friday morning for coffee. We're going to read through this book and we're going to pray together. And you'll see really quickly who's serious and who's not. And those who are serious, then you can say, hey, let's maybe start meeting one-on-one and let's really begin to talk about where we need to grow. Now, that's selection. Association is this idea of living life with them. And you can read my statement there. These are just my summary comments. So once you associate with them and you you open up your life to them, consecration is making sure you're calling one another to the pursuit of holiness, and you're speaking to those blind spots that you see in their life. Impartation is the speaking truth into their life, okay? And what I would say here is when you begin to disciple somebody who is young in the faith, they probably don't have a real secure foundation of biblical knowledge. So what discipleship looks more like in this phase uh, is spending time going through something like FOF or going through some good biblical doctrine, listening to some good sermons and talking through. Matter of fact, starting with the gospel itself. Do they really understand what the gospel is? So with a younger person in the faith, we spend a lot of time instructing them in Bible knowledge. But sometimes you're in a context with somebody who's been saved for 10, 15 years. They know the Bible. That's not the issue. They're just not living the Bible. So what you want to do is spend more time on the counseling application. Do you, you know the verse. Are you living the verse? Let's talk about where that's the case. So you want to move from just knowledge to wisdom is what I'm getting at. Okay? And you have to discern what they need. Demonstration, of course, is making sure that you give them an example to follow. And uh, I put just one idea in here. There's so many. But find a younger person, if you're older, particularly who has an interest in going into your vocational field, and just invite them into your life. Come down have lunch with you at, at work one day. Um, talk about the challenges you're facing. Talk about the opportunities to share Christ. And let them process with you, what does it mean to be a believer in my field? Okay? That's an opportunity. Crossroads sits over there. I know it's summer, but coming this fall, it's going to be filled with hundreds of young people who would desperately benefit from somebody who's 5, 10, 20 years ahead of them in their own vocation in their field and minister to them in that way. There's other ways to do this by way of demonstration, of course. Uh, it might be serving in Awana and bringing somebody along with you and have them watch you and serve with you, okay? Yeah, Venture Club, thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going back to my years with my kids, but yeah, Venture Club. Okay, Uh, Delegation. At some point, you want to entrust them with some responsibility. Start small, but begin to share. Not because you want to use people to uh, diminish your own burden and workload, but you want to find key things that you say, hey, you've watched me, I've explained it to you, and now I want you to do it. Um, When I was in college life, Crossroads back then, before we could ever consider serving in leadership in a Bible study, we just had to show up early every Sunday morning to set up chairs. That was the test of faithfulness. You did that for six months, and they might talk to you. Okay? Well, setting up chairs isn't rocket science, you know. It's not parsing Greek and Hebrew terms, okay? But it was showing faithfulness. But in time, they would come alongside and teach, show us how to study God's word and prepare a teaching outline and things like this. So you can prepare people to teach God's word. It might be other aspects or tasks of ministry and life, okay? Okay? Um, One of the things I note here is be aware of your own fearfulness. If you're a control freak and you want to look good in front of people, you're going to have a hard time entrusting your disciple with things that they're going to fail at. Now, you can mitigate the risk, decide what you give to them, but you want to create an environment where people can strive hard with good intentions but even make mistakes. And that leads to this next point that Christ was so great at is he would come alongside. How many times did he pick Peter up after mistakes, right? and he'd brush him off, and he'd remind him of the eternal perspective and the truth. Because he knew what God would do through Peter one day. Do not treat people in a disposable fashion, okay? And don't abandon them. Once we delegate things, we move on to other tasks. Be right there to follow up and pick up the pieces and get them uh, back on the path of faithfulness. Anyways, the end of that is what? To reproduce themselves so they can go on and do that with somebody else. This is what discipleship, if you will, with the small d or the practical side of it actually looks like in the life of the church. Now, let me close with this. Some of you have never experienced what I just described. But it's not too late. I don't care if you're in your 70s in here. You would benefit from a relationship with somebody, a godly relationship that can speak into your life, okay? Okay. You don't need to wait. It's wherever you're at. Pursue those kinds of relationships. Make yourself accountable, open, transparent. Let the word of God and the authority of Scripture and Christ himself be your Lord in all things. And in so doing, we will have the joy of being made complete in Christ. Now, what I skipped over, and this is the promise for all of us, glorification is coming. Okay? The final work is going to be made complete. We will get a new body, okay? And the, the full perfection and the completion of God's work does await us. But that should never be an excuse that we take a casual approach or a less than serious approach of being devoted today. Amen? All right, let me pray and let you go. Father, thank you for my friends who are here today. I confess, even trying to teach these principles, I know that there are so many areas in my own life that fall short of allowing Christ to be Lord completely. But I would pray for each of us today that we would make a determination in the power of your spirit, under his conviction and with his aid, to strengthen us to pursue a life of discipleship, discipling others, being discipled with the end, that we will be found true disciples of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Guide us to this end, we pray in his name, amen. All right, thank you, Lord bless.